0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants week after week through their many vaunted titles. Now, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Now, as normal, we're going to cover a number of this week's X releases in the form of X-Men Legacy and the previously released Excalibur. But before we can get into that, we had an amazing interview this past week. Nathan, Arturo, and Robbie sat down with new X-Men novelist, Robbie McNiven they talk about some of the amazing character choices like focusing on Annalie Victor, who is you know not just an awesome character from the last twenty years, but an important queer character that you know fans love, and we just don't get to see enough of in the books. It's an amazing interview where you find out what goes into the way these novels are crafted and why certain characters get to shine there a little bit brighter. It was a lot of fun to edit. and We hope you guys enjoy.
1: Welcome everybody to an extra special X's for podcast. My name is Nathan. Uh, you can find me online at dazzler
2: a o a. Hi
3: guys. I'm Arturo. I'm Mr. Toybox on twitter and instagram and we've got with us robbie
2: hey everyone i'm robbie and you can find me at age of polaris on twitter
4: I said, "Do I just jump in and say I'm also Robbie?" <laughs> <laughs>
1: Today we are here with Robbie McNiven, and we are gonna gush about his new book that's coming out. First team, it's one of the Ekman prose novels that are coming out. Welcome to the
4: pod. Thank you so much for having me. It's actually a real honor to be on, especially as I gave you guys pretty much short notice. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it, it's great to be here. Yeah, I've got a X Men book coming out in uh, March for the US and April for most other places. Um, I was lucky enough to get asked to write this book uh, for marvel and uh, aconite books the publisher and yeah here i am
3: we're so happy to have you here robbie
1: and it is a phenomenal book like i can't believe how good is this Thanks. yes so i always like to ask new guests to the show like tell me about what is your x-men fandom so like what's your experience with the x-men before doing this?
4: that is a good question so you probably hear this a lot but i used to love the 90s cartoon x-men show yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Yes, a,
3: a, a fellow animated series brother. Yes. Yeah, who would have thought?
4: <laughs> who would have thought? I feel like, yeah, that's probably like a, a fairly common answer. But uh, yeah, I that was like my first exposure to X-Men. I'm a 90s kid, so I grew up when that was coming out. Loved it. Never really got an opportunity to delve into the comic book side because I grew up in a very small village in the highlands of Scotland, which is not really well known as a comic scene. I think the nearest comic book store would be about, well, Ah nearly an hour's drive so yeah never really had a window of opportunity to just naturally sort of like you know see a comic book store and want to go in and grab issues so the the cartoon was really the gateway drug and uh, (laughs) and then from there you know when all of the the line of cinema releases started coming out in the early 2000s um, that kind of just brought back early childhood memories which was a lot of fun.
3: Yeah did you like dive into like trade paperbacks or because like you definitely definitely have a lot of X-Men knowledge it seems yeah. like so do like, i <laughs> or is this all just extensive wikipedia research
4: it's a bit of both i did a lot of reading when i knew i got the gig i yeah i got back a lot of the sort of the new x-men sort of mid-2000s era comics did a lot of reading for that because that kind of was basically where i was setting the story kind of like annul when he was fairly fairly young still if you think that i am sort of like a, a well-grounded x-men fan and have loads of X- Experience, I'm glad because I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a fake fan, but I've done a lot more sort of reading in the past. well, It's about a year since I first knew I was getting the gig, and I tried to immerse myself as much as possible into sort of the whole, the ethos of really what these characters are all about, um, and kind of reignite that childhood love that I had for things like the TV series that were, you know, my first, my first entry into the whole, whole universe. And again, you probably hear this all the time, but genuinely, the X Men are my favorite superheroes. Like they always have been. No other sort. Of famous group or gang comes close as far as I'm concerned.
3: Yes. Well, I gotta we say love you to do hear. a pretty damn good job of uh, of faking it because <laughs> you, you definitely have given these characters a voice that is so uh, so authentic and so believable. One big question that we have, I guess, to, to kind of kick this off is just to kind of establish where this story takes place. Is it in the 616 Marvel Universe or is it like a similar yet different parallel timeline? Where where are we exactly?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. So essentially the short answer is it is a parallel timeline, but it's very close to 616. Yes. So unofficially, uh, the authors um, Carrie Harris and myself and the other ones doing sort of other Marvel lines are calling this Earth six one eight, so awesome. it's close. I think I know with Carrie and myself as well. We wanted to try and stay as close as possible to the six one six timeline uh, because we wanted we knew readers would be the most familiar with that sort of timeline and wanted to kind of keep it grounded in that. But at the same time, uh, if you've read the book, you'll know that things happen in the book, which you know it goes it goes differently. It's not exactly identical, and I think that was important to have slight variation because. You know, if you're just trying to retell old stories from 616, if you're just trying to sort of change uh, comic book stories into prose stories, it's not really going to have the same zest. Mm-hmm. There was actually a bit of talk at the start of the project where we were trying to figure out, are we kind of just re- going to rehash some really good sort of comic book stories? I know there are a few that I really want to do, but then we decided, no, it's better to, to come up with basically whole new plots. And in order to do that, you do need a bit of leeway to change things. But hopefully we've done it in a way that is respectful to the, the universe that people are already familiar with. Yeah, that's the long answer.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. So. Is it like a shared universe between between all of the X-Men prose lines then, is, is what I'm guessing then? or
0: like uh, that?
4: Yeah, that's also an interesting question because I haven't actually paused to consider if it's shared beyond the Xavier's Institute line. So certainly the ones that carry myself and any future ones that are Xavier's Institute will be sort of shared universe. Sort of the long-term hope is to build that up with loads of different stories, covering as many different characters as possible and kind of make it like a little sandbox of adventures. I'm not actually sure if technically the other stuff so like the asgard i mean that's not going to really feature it's all Marvel, right but it's not right it's not like the exact same setting if that makes sense
3: i think you guys have made a really smart choice because you're definitely staying true to enough of the material Mm -hmm. but you're also kind of like freestyling and doing your own story and i think that's that's a really really neat trick i wanted to ask you how you chose this cast of characters and and mainly the the protagonist of you know of annal it just seemed like a unexpected and kind of refreshing decision you know we talk here week after week about how some characters there's just like an oversaturation of them and mm-hmm. and we're seeing you know these main headlining characters all the time and it, it'd be we i think i speak to for everyone on the podcast when we say it's great to see kind of the offbeat lesser-known characters get a, a moment in the spotlight mm-hmm. and that's what what i loved about this book right from the first page was like this isn't about wolverine and cyclops and Jean gray this is this is about you know annal about about Bronkowski. Bronkowski. like that was just mm-hmm. such a unexpected beat
4: yeah i mean i i was really excited that i got the the green light to to write about uh, that sort of trio that central trio that i wanted to do annal and cypher and grimalkin story is a bit more convoluted in so much as it was about a year ago where we first got the opportunity that said you know we've got rights to work with Marvel. We got a list of loads of characters that we could choose to pitch, and I sent in so many pitches, like Mm -hmm. 12 pitches for different novel ideas, just because, you know, I I wanted to write all of them. Obviously, you're not allowed to do that. So, uh, yeah, I worked my way through a bunch of different ones. There were some that just, you know, it wasn't quite working. Honestly, I can't really tell you how I landed one day on Anol in particular. I think the idea to have him in cast, basically, with Cypher and Grey Malkin was fairly natural and Rockslide obviously Rockslide is in there everyone talks about sort of the trio because they're on the front cover but how could I write about an without having Rockslide? Like that's, that's not happening so um, yeah I think a lot of sort of if you want to say new wave heroes from the early 2000s onwards were fair game you know Marvel were happy to have stories about them and actually wanted to explore these lesser known characters how I specifically got to an yeah I can't can't remember I think I was like oh he's awesome yeah <laughs> you know he's like a lizard boy he's a lizard boy he's really charismatic he's like <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) He's good fun. Like, what would you not want to write about him?
3: Well, and beyond right. being a lizard boy, though, which is admittedly awesome, he's also one of the few out, you know, yeah. canonically queer characters. Yeah. And like, that was something that, you know, I mean, we're, we're a pretty queer podcast and, uh, you know, I think, I think we all basically were very excited to just get a little more of, of him. And I, I just want to say, I think it's really cool the way you handled his, mm-hmm. uh, his, his sexual identity. Like it's part of the story. It's definitely mentioned, but it's, isn't like
4: annals coming out story Mm -hmm. and I appreciate that i'm glad to hear that yeah i was really excited to sort of include that element because as you say he's he's like really important in a sense in terms of x-men history because he is pretty much like the first modern out queer superhero in the x-men sort of franchise so it was important to me to sort of like uh play off that but also i didn't want to make it the central theme of the story i wanted it to be sort of like a comfortable background thing that you know it's talked about and it's cool and it's there but it's not all about just that it also let me play off uh his relationship with Grey Malkin I think because they are kind of coming at it from such different angles you know uh, Grey Malkin had literally the most horrific uh, coming out experience imaginable back in the 1700s um, you know getting attacked by his dad and everything and then Anol has the absolute rare privilege for basically any mutant to grow up with a loving family with loving parents who accepted him but kind of getting to explore the two aspects of the classic X-Men story uh, using them both uh, it was yeah, it was interesting it was one of the main ideas I had for, for the Thrust of the plots, but yeah it was really important to me to make an all sort of you know openly gay but comfortable about that and it's not it's not high drama you know that's not the, the basis of, of the plot
1: no I, I love that the friendship between gray and vic especially was allowed to like just like in the books too and in the story it was allowed to progress as just a friendship when mm-hmm. so many times you see the writers have a desire like to, okay there's two gay characters let's make them mm-hmm. you know they're together now yeah so I, I loved how <laughs> they were just able to maintain a friendship and like it actually just showed queer friendship in, in mm. a different light than what we usually portrayed
4: yeah yeah i was actually really happy because i got a note back from marvel saying that they were pleased that it was exploring this aspect of uh sort of two queer characters two queer male characters that are friends and are not immediately sort of oh wow well, here are the two sort of queer characters in the story they must you know have some sort of uh relationship or uh, you know emotional investment in that way no they're just really close friends and you know they, they help each other out and uh, they sort of look up to each other in different ways so I was glad that it hit that note
3: you also did a really good job of giving us a sense of of his family and how supportive they were and kind of like mm-hmm. what kind of kid he was and uh and I don't I mean I just gotta say like whether this is you know the 618 or 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 what specifically it certainly has impacted my perception of Vic as a character and I just Mm -hmm. like want to thank you for that because it's you've given him so much more context and and color I walked away from this and I'm still in the middle of the book I have not finished the book (laughs) but I I'm already walking away from it with this you know more genuine more grounded appreciation for him as a character and I think that's a pretty neat trick that
4: you did I'm I'm glad yeah I mean it's sort of it's an honour to get to take lesser well-known characters from this franchise and try and build up the backgrounds that we we know about them I think I'm right in saying that we don't actually in uh, 616 we never find out an old parent's first names um, I think they're just Mr. and Mr. Bukowski so yeah it's kind of about fleshing them out as well and uh, giving or shining a light on that relationship, which, uh, like I said, I think it's really interesting and important that we here have a mutant who is both, you know, well, a mutant, an obvious mutant, not one who can hide his abilities. You know, he's green um, and he's also, you know, openly out and he still has this loving family and this loving community, uh, which I think is a nice change from the what we're maybe more used to with the tragic backstory superheroes.
2: Yeah, and it's definitely really nice being able to see that. I really just love overall how you're able to show the different types of relationships in Anul's life and that's really amazing. Yeah,
1: thank you. One of the central hints of the story was like, at least that resonated with me was just the exploration of trauma, just the trauma that, you know, Vic goes through in the story and the mm-hmm. trauma that Gray and Alyssa already gone through and just how they use their shared experience between the, the two friends to help Vic through his trauma and just like how it helped bond them in, in the family. And it really takes that X-Men as a found family step to like the next level.
4: Yeah, I think found family is basically the central theme of the entire novel you know it's, it's the plot that we were trying to aim to hit the correct the correct tone on Xavier's Institute in general is is a found family for so many of the students uh, and again Anol was an interesting central character because he actually has a family that is loving and he doesn't have the same sort of the quest to find acceptance that uh, Graham Alkin and Alyssa have gone through but then when the sort of the tables turn and suddenly Vic's family that are being threatened they've got his back and, you know, they're sort of the ideal people to turn to because they have this experience. Yeah, hopefully it plays off, you know, it bounces the plot correctly along its way. I don't want to say too much because <laughs> it's spoilers, but yeah.
1: Yeah, that's why I was like, how do I put that? I don't want to put too many <laughs> in there, but
3: that's, Yeah, well, that's, speaking that's... speaking of spoilers, right, so like the antagonists <laughs> that we have, without spoiling anything, but like the antagonists <laughs> of this, the, you know, the bad guys here are a very classic X-Men, you know, antagonist. right? We have the Purifiers doing exactly what the purifiers that we're used to seeing in in the comic books. I mean, you picked up, like, right where we left off. I was curious to know if there was other, if you had considered other directions or different villains, or if you Mm -hmm. knew from the get-go that it was going to be about these, you know, religious, uh, Mm -hmm. fundamentalist, racist dicks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you put it like that, they're
4: the perfect villains, right? Right. Um, Yeah, exactly. I Yeah, there wasn't, I think the purifiers were kind of number one on my list for bad guys. Because in my mind, and bearing in mind that you know I've written sort of uh, sci-fi and fantasy quite a bit before uh, moving on to this, in my mind they're kind of like the orcs of the X-Men franchise. Because when you need them to be in plentiful supply, you can get you know a big mob of them. Uh, they're kind of dumb. They're pretty. They're pretty dangerous. You know they're quite like a threatening, threatening group. They're good foot soldiers for the bad guy. Basically, they made a lot of sense in terms of what I needed from my villains. Beyond that, it's, it it kind of cuts to the core again of the whole X-Men universe that this um, intolerance and this prejudice uh, is is what the X-Men are really all about combating, and it finds its clearest vocalization with the Purifiers, really. They are, to my mind, they are one of the archetypal villains or sort of villain groups in the series. So I wanted to play that up as well. Yeah, and then just taking sort of the purifier boss again without pushing uh, too much into the spoilers but the the main purifier if you will kind of getting to write a few scenes from his perspective was interesting because it's always interesting to kind of dig into the the psyche of the bad guys even when it's a deeply unpleasant psyche you know it's not great but when you're writing and if it's you know you've been writing the main character's perspective for a long time then to suddenly switch out to the bad guy can be quite refreshing. So yeah I think they just brought to the table a lot of things that I needed from villains in this. Um, I had thought about other groups but i didn't want to step onto the toes of like carrie has sentinels in carrie harris's book which you know i kind of watched your sentinels but i was like no you know don't have two, <laughs> novel, two novels in a row where it's them because again that's another classic villain right you don't want to oversaturate
2: when it comes to villains you have any other favorite x-men villains
4: you know what this is going to sound kind of weird because it's pretty random but i kind of want to write a book about romulus ooh, like ooh. yeah i don't <laughs> yeah beyond that i mean obviously there's other aspects that we can't talk about because of Spoilers (laughs)
1: <laughs> in this
4: in this book there is also a separate marvel line that Anconite books are doing that is the villains uh there's a doctor oh, doom novel by david annandale that, that came out think, a couple of months ago which i've pitched some ideas to but sadly none of them are sort of like x-men centric they're more broadly marvel so i don't really want to give away too much in case i suffer my uh chances of sort of landing book contracts but yeah i'm always there for the villain stuff i mean you can't really have a story with superheroes without bad guys either so yeah
3: amen that was exactly the <laughs> note that uh that I, I put in our questions <laughs> when we were putting it together i was like you can't write a good hero story yeah. without a compelling villain it's just yeah. impossible yeah. yeah it's true
5: uh, how
1: did you choose the setting of the the main part of action take place a lot of it takes place in new york what was mm-hmm. it um what was the thought process behind choosing that as the main part? i
4: mean you know someone not from the u.s clearly everything has to happen in new york right so <laughs> yes <laughs> far as I'm aware, you know, every um, every action film and uh, superhero story always takes place in New York. Maybe LA sometime. Though. Yeah, I I'm not really sure. I I thought about the sort of the contrasting settings that feature in the book. So you have, interestingly, you've got a sort of rural America, Illinois, where yep. I know it's from. I, because he comes from Fairbury, right? So yep. uh, I initially, for the whole novel, was saying he was from the wrong place. And I've now that I think it was Fairburn, which it's a town that sounds like Fairbury and it's in illinois and i had been like i did research about this place i made sure that when he was like walking through town he was walking through like the correct parts and the street names and then editor was like yeah that's not the right that's oh, not no. the right american oh i town. love
3: that you i love <laughs> that you researched that though that's so i cool. did yeah i
4: tried to like all street names and stuff should be accurate and i was like oh that's you gotta be kidding me so um i did change it but it's maybe not as accurate to the real february as uh, people would like i mean the comic book creator the guy that created album initially is from that place you know presumably that's why and all comes from there so i feel bad in case he ever reads it and it's like this isn't my town but <laughs> uh so yeah we had we had that sort of rural setting and then you've got the actual institute itself which is lovely and grimy and dark and time foreboding and not really the sort of place you'd send your kids to college but hey it's, it's good to see here. <laughs> well it's
3: funny that you bring that up so that was another another thing that we were curious about it seems like in you know writing this kind of a book that the, the obvious answer would be oh it takes place at the mansion in Westchester mm-hmm. and you know what I mean like mm-hmm. that seems like a very clear and obvious gimme. It was interesting that this does not though this is taking place there at the Weapon X facility and it's yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's you know kind of like that bunker yep. setting and it's uh, a little a little rougher can you speak a little bit about that and, and what made you ta- make that decision?
4: Yeah well uh, I can give a pretty simple answer it wasn't my idea <laughs> 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 but uh, sort of the, the whole Xavier Institute arc is, is occurring so the Xavier's Institute that is the one in the title is actually this, this Weapon X school basically. Um, you can probably actually help me more than I can help you with this one because I think I'm correct in saying that this is after the sort of traditional manse the X-Mansion is sort of yes. out of commission um, destroyed maybe potentially and there are kind of two schools going on one with Wolverine and one with Jean and Scott Summers I'm saying this very cautiously because I know <laughs> you know about it well, um, yeah. well
1: so yeah so this so is why yeah. we why we figured <laughs> <the schism. laughs> out that this was like
4: near 616
3: but not yeah. exactly in the 616 because yeah. it definitely harkened back to that time when so, mm-hmm. there was the, the schism and, and Wolverine was yeah. leading a team and Cyclops was mm-hmm. leading a team yeah Jean Grey I think was was still dead at that point in the but there's in the time Grey, though, too. so right. oh there was yeah. then there was a time yeah. displaced Jean Grey yeah so <laughs> this definitely you know kind of took some some creative liberties and it feels yeah. like it feels like it's in a post Xavier world like he's established we we live in the world where he's established the team and all that but he's gone is that safe to say
4: um uh, I will not give a yes-no answer to that, because I wouldn't want to to mislead you, but I'm pretty confident in saying that the actual, like, the whole Xavier Mance thing is not a thing anymore, hence why most of the students are kind of shacked up in uh, this old Weapon X facility, and that is the Xavier's Institute, um, as we have it in this series. Where the series goes, if it wants to delve into what's happened to Professor X and all that sort of stuff, then I'm not sure. I imagine if it keeps, sort of, if we get a run of books uh, and other authors and stuff, that it might well get answered. Uh, so i wouldn't want to trade on people's toes by just kind of saying oh this is probably what's going to happen because i don't i don't actually know it took again with this, the February example there was a while where i was thinking it was actually going to be the x mansion and they were like no no this is it's the one in canada <laughs> it's the weapon x display. Yeah. i was like oh which is kind of cool because you know the expansion is awesome but also this kind of like all dingy weapon space is pretty fun as aesthetic. so uh, so that's where it is
3: <laughs> yeah i really i really hope you guys got the opportunity to to keep creating yes. in this in this sandbox because this is just this is so fun i was telling the guys before in the green room before we started recording it it really reminds me a lot of the the kind of the star wars novels um that you know this expanded universe where it's like you take these little bits you know from the comic and you just give us so much more you know of a world Mm -hmm. to inhabit with it and uh it definitely took me back to you know times you know like in high school or whatever when i felt like i was quote-unquote too old for comic books (laughs) so i was like no i gotta read real books and then in no time, I'm like reading sci fi, and it's uh, it kind of feels like that. And, and I hope right that it's, I hope it's exactly that for some readers out there, you know, because it, it feels like it's just that kind of content, it, it feels like a really good jumping on point for uh, for, for young readers,
4: yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's it's a relief to hear that because my biggest fear is people who are familiar with the characters from you know 616 reading and saying, Well, this isn't right, this doesn't happen, what's the this is just a learning. <laughs> so yeah, kind of going into uh a setting that really means a lot to a lot of people and trying to handle it with care and make sure that the end product is something that people are going to enjoy and not just be like, oh, this is, you know, this is just a hack version. That's important to me. Uh, and I really hope that the way you feel is the way a lot of people feel, but I guess time will tell.
1: <laughs> it's really, e- even though there are, there are differences and there's some obvious plot point differences later on that we won't go into, but like it's crafted with care. With I tell that you've got a genuine affection for these characters. So even if it's, even if it's a little different, even if it's a little... Um, you know not what we're used to it one i'm enjoying like seeing the whole universe come together between these two novels kind of like wow okay this is a cool story i'm I'm really interested in where this is going and two there's just like between both you and carrie's book there's so much love and care and like even though yeah it's it's not 616 it's 618 but like there's you guys get these
4: characters very glad to hear
3: that (laughs) yeah this might sound corny but the book has made me feel like man i want to write i want to write an x-men story what's stopping (laughs) me from just like grabbing you know a couple of characters and just and and crafting a story around them like it's you do true. it in this way that it feels like an open source kind of world now like it feels like th- there's this opportunity to like kind of build out you know it's because it's fan fiction in a way you know mm-hmm. but given a little more legitimacy yeah absolutely
1: <laughs> what was the process between when you were developing the story and going back and forth with that office itself and what they would like al- what they would allow you to do and what they wouldn't allow
4: you to do yeah I mean they were they were really great they were fairly sort of light touch. They let us deal with it fairly in-house between myself and my editor at the publisher. Uh, I think sort of the most important oversight for them is making sure that the characters of the general story is going to fit. So when they they knew the characters I'd chosen, they were happy with that. Then it just kind of, it rolls from there naturally. Uh, they weren't sort of, you know, demanding updates and overseeing every little thing. They, they let us write and um, and then it was occasionally sent back to sort of just check up on progress and make sure everything was fitting. But yeah, there there wasn't, it wasn't sort of sort of heavy-handed It's a demanding collaboration type thing. They really just let us roll with it. And I think from the feedback, they're they're pretty happy. So fingers crossed.
1: (laughs) Well, having read it, they should be happy. (laughs) I'm very glad. That's
4: that's good news. The customer is always right.
2: With the character Cypher, she's a character that we definitely don't really get to see much of. Can you tell us about what it was like writing her? Yeah. I I like to think there's like a a
4: joke in there. It's a character that we don't get to see very much. (laughs) That is true. That is her thing yeah she was another interesting one because I've kind of learned from writing other IP that sometimes uh, if there's a mystery you shouldn't necessarily want to reveal it at the first opportunity sometimes the mystery in itself is the interesting part so I didn't really want to delve into her childhood given that we deal quite a lot with Anol and Gray uh, Malkin's past of course we don't really know where this comes from she just kind of turned up one day in the next month so I didn't want to explore or reveal that uh, I mean for the record I don't know what it is either <laughs> if there is like if there is like the canon hidden somewhere, then I do not know it. I wanted to kind of develop her as kind of like a no-nonsense character. She's sort of the kind of person that you'd want at your side if you're trying to get through, because she's not going to break down and, you know, have an emotional moment. She's going to get the job done. Again, she's not necessarily a character that we've seen a huge amount in the comics, so I'd say possibly she was the one I felt the most that, you know, it might not hit the exact same spot the way some people imagine her, uh, the way they would with Grey Malkin and-, and all. But I ended up actually really enjoying her. I was kind of worried she would kind of be like the third character, in a sense, Kevin and Gray Malcolm first and second uh, but I feel as though she really sort of comes into it and her powers are kind of interesting initially I was worried she was going to be sort of too powerful because stuff she can do you know she can just dash and phase through stuff and all of that but actually that didn't really impact the plot it didn't sort of cause issues the way sometimes if you have an overpowered character it could potentially so yeah I was very much enjoying sort of the perspective that she can give on the other characters
1: what we did get to see of you know the more established characters especially Cyclops like I, I really found the voice you use for him as like just like especially in that time period like it, it was absolutely perfect like <laughs> he's stepping into this role of being you know more than just the team leader he's stepping into the role of being head matter and this the shepherd or all the lost mutants so like what was your process in writing the bits of Cyclops you got to
4: write I mean yeah it was really just about playing up the whole Principal Summers type vibe trying to g- kind of hit that dichotomy seeing things from both his perspective and his students perspective so from his students perspective he's sort of cut and dry it's very clear he's the boss you know but from his perspective things are very uncertain and he's trying to juggle all these external problems that the school is facing without sort of losing control of the actual institute itself I thought that that's an interesting back and forth he kind of acts as a, a grounding rod for the antics of the kids basically yeah I think he was quite uh, he was refreshing to write because the problems that he's facing are much broader than sort of just helping an old parent you know he doesn't really have the resources to help an old parents at this point because the way I've set it up uh, everything is kind of going haywire and he's dealing with all that, you know sort of in the quote unquote grown up role while he has to let the, uh, the fledglings fly the nest and uh, try and sort their own problems out so yeah I think that was that was the main thing behind his character
1: I think that's one of my favorite parts is that that since you set it up in that way you didn't have the main team come in and save the day and the, yeah. and the kids had to figure it out themselves and just the teamwork and the dynamic they used to get through the main uh, main problem in the story um, I, I really loved it and I loved how everything came
4: together I'm glad I did initially think about having you know Wolverine turns up and saves the day but I was like no we need to we need to give these kids their time to shop so yeah <laughs>
3: one thing we were talking about is how with mutant powers and mutant physiology you know when it comes to the comic books the I, I think it's safe to say the art does a lot of the work for kind of conveying some of the body horror or just kind of how it looks or how it works it's really interesting that you know with this book you didn't write this in a way that just assumes that the reader has a comic book or has mm-hmm. all these frames of reference and just happens to know that Rock Slide looks like a small mountain and <laughs> you know and, and what Anna looks like could you speak to that a little bit like kind of the that sci-fi exercise of explaining you know how a chameleon scales works or mm. uh, or a prehensile tongue um yeah
4: um i mean the the basic problem with dealing with that was that i found myself running out of adjectives especially for rocks like skin <laughs> i was like he's craggy and rugged and stony <laughs> and craggy and also i found we decided early on to change i was describing a null as invisible a lot when he went chameleon but then that was kind of treading on um, Cypher's toes because she literally went invisible and Anul wasn't really going invisible he was just becoming more difficult to see so again juggling adjectives is uh, sort of like the nitty gritty of the writing work that's not really very glamorous but uh, yeah I think it was easier for some of the characters like Anul because he's kind of grown up with his abilities again this was a slight point of contention because I can't actually remember how it ended up in the novel but initially I wrote as though he was born the way he is but then actually I think in reality he developed his sort of mutant abilities around the age of 13-ish so I can't remember which one I think we kind of just left it out either way in the book but more or less I'm thinking that he's you know uh, well-established with his abilities and that's just the way he is so I didn't really want to play up from his perspective how weird it is to kind of like crawl up and down walls and stuff because he's used to that it's a little sort of narrative exercise to use the moment where he visits home without too many spoilers uh, he visits home and gets to show off some of his powers in front of like the neighborhood kid because they want to see what he can do so I can use that as opportunity to say to a reader that maybe isn't too familiar with them, this is what he can do, he can change colour and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it kind of just varies from character to character. Uh, Grey Malkin, I love writing because I had this idea that the Purifiers would see him as literally a demon because Mm -hmm. of the way his powers work. His powers, if you didn't know who he was, if someone just told you this guy's powers are activated when he's in the dark, he'd be like, oh, that's pretty scary. Like That doesn't necessarily sound like a particularly you know, it's not the sort of superhero trait we associate with the good guys, but that is just how how he's ended up and uh, he he doesn't see doesn't understand why some people might be kind of freaked out by his ability to kind of go turbo when it gets dark but from his opponent's perspective he's like a terrifying force in nature if he actually gets in the dark so stuff like that was fun to kind of play with it's kind of just about trying to stay true to the character and what we knew already trying to hit correct points with their personality as well I was kind of afraid at certain parts I was making uh, Rockslide slide too like stoic and so we kind of like jazzed him up a bit because we didn't want him clashing with Graham Malkin Malcolm. because Malkin's the kind of like the full guy in terms of um, the deadpan humor like the guy who says something funny without meaning to be funny? So anyway, yeah, I'm starting to run. <laughs> no, that's
3: awesome. that's awesome. No,
1: it's perfect. It's perfect. Uh, one of the things I did I did love is how you use the more sci-fi elements of the mutant abilities and juxtaposed it with the obviously human abilities of the purifiers and, and just them being pure humans. And the sword fight that was so well done. I loved that. <laughs> like that one scene. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> I'm
4: glad that was that was a pretty fun fun scene to write because it was it was fairly badass. I I kind of, yeah, we had some discussion as to whether Anol would actually be good with a sword, but he strikes me as the kind of guy, because, you know, he's into acting, I feel like he would have, like, some stage sword skills. And then it was also kind of cool because it let me bring out the bad guy doing something fairly, like, effective. Again, without spoilers. I, like, you have to have a little bit where the bad guy actually does something because otherwise they're not threatening. You know, they don't achieve anything. You just know they're going to lose at the end. So that scene, you know, the bad guy does stuff and uh, I quite enjoyed that because again, it's the it's twist in what you would normally expect
1: from a superhero story. Yeah, no, I, I did love how it, it upped the stake. Yeah, mm. obviously it's a superhero book, so you know the good guys are going to end in, win in the end, right? But it, it definitely upped the stakes. <laughs> going. <laughs> <laughs> somebody is reading this novel and they really really enjoy your style, what other novel of yours or story or whatever would you suggest that they look into next? Ooh, that's
4: a good question. Um, it's difficult to question. say because <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
4: everything I've written at the moment is with various different IPs so it kind of depends on what you're, you're into most of the work I've done in the past is for uh, Warhammer 40,000 Games Workshop which is sort of the classic gritty dark sci-fi sort of military-esque so if you like dark gritty sci-fi then uh, any one of those books the only other Aconite book that I've done at the moment is a fantasy novel called The Doom of Fallowhearth which I think I mean obviously it's a long way from New York uh, but I think it, in spirit is probably the closest relation in terms of like my writing style it was the first book that I wrote before this one so it's the
1: closest sort of in my own time if that makes sense awesome awesome Uh, i'm gonna definitely look that i'm gonna definitely check that out myself because oh thank you i love this book so much i mean i can't i can't even like it's been such an honor getting to talk to you today getting to talk Carrie too it's just i'm amazed at the talent that they let get in this line because you know sometimes with ip uh, you don't always get as much of the love of the characters but you guys both have presented these masterful stories that really do get the heart of dory and yeah maybe there's some different differences but it's it familiar enough and i love the differences actually because it makes it a little bit more exciting you get to see a different twist on it and like Arturo was saying like i really do walk away with this feeling i have a much better understanding of uh, Vic, ray santo and Alyssa. like i want all four of those to be in a book now and just like a comic book and just get that series all the time <laughs> yeah no
4: i mean thank you so much it's there were a few moments when i was starting out where i was like oh my goodness i'm writing an x-men book this is like this pressure because you want to try and if you can't get it perfect to at least um hit the point where people who are big fans of the characters and the comics read it and enjoy it and don't think oh this is this is just not you know it's not the same thing uh so the fact that you guys at least have uh, enjoyed it is, is massive so thank you
3: yeah thank you so much robbie we really hope to see more you know more more stories coming out of out of this project and and from you specifically i hope the i hope a couple more of your pitches get brought to life because this was really really a fun fun world to to dip my toes into and and i want more of it so
4: thank you fingers crossed
2: thank you so much it's uh incredible to see what you're able to do with all the characters
4: thank you yeah it means a lot it really means a lot to hear
0: Hey everybody, welcome back. And in this next segment, Maddie... Jonah, and Kyle talk all about the most recent issue of Excalibur. Now, Excalibur's been a weird ride, you know, it was expected to carry the banner of magic and mutantum for a while, and then everything got kind of magic, and what did that leave for Excalibur? Well, it's going to some incredible places, crossing the multiverse, and exploring what it means to be Betsy. Now, we're seeing some reflections of this over in the pages of Hellions, where we're seeing it through the eyes of Conan, and I feel like what we're seeing here in Excalibur has been a powerful transformation of the expectation of the title and what it means to be that sort of solitary toe the sword kind of hero. It's also been an amazing opportunity to see characters like Jubilee, Rogue, and Gambit, sort of nineties mainstays thrive in new atmospheres, and we've really been enjoying it. We hope you guys are too. Check out this next segment.
6: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to X's for Podcast. My name is Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak
7: Jonah. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-82.
8: Hey guys, it's Maddie, and as always, you can find me over on Instagram at the basely covetous man at over on Twitter at Basely Covenants.
6: And today, we're going to be covering Excalibur number 18. Wow,
7: 18 already. It's incredible.
6: <laughs> it is really amazing at how fast a lot of these Hox Pox issues are going. So, Excalibur number 18 was written by Teeny Howard with the art by Marcus Toe. And this issue for me was interesting because it was another issue of a lot of setup. This was probably in the Hoxpox era the issue the issue that had the most amount of text to read there was a lot to cover and there's a lot to see and i don't think there's any better way to get started with how are we feeling with Betsy being back but not quite herself in the last time that we saw Betsy she was in this parallel universe where she was the queen of england with her slam piece Warren because he's you know the most beautiful concubine himbo that you can have at this point and Quanin was Warren's ex-girlfriend who is their secret um, agent bodyguard? Question mark. <laughs> it, yeah.
8: No, I, you know, I think, I think if nothing else, the, the Betsy quandary that we've fallen into in this issue has provided, if nothing else, the potential for her and Quanon, whether it's in our reality or another reality, to begin to hash out a little bit of the guilt that Betsy carries with her and a little bit of the lost love between the two of them. Not that they were ever particularly close, they just shared a body. So that's weird. But I think in that way, having the alternate version of Quanin be the analog by which Betsy tries to alleviate herself of the guilt was a good step in the right direction for moving her character forward.
7: Yeah, I agree with that totally. And, well, I wouldn't say totally because I did, last last week I did say that it wasn't exactly the proper move for her to apologize to this alternative Quanon. So, it's definitely getting her ready to do the actual apologize. To our version of Quanin, but yeah, it, it's, it's just a stepping stone, I think.
8: You know what? And, and that that really makes me think of like, you know, when somebody, when somebody works through, you know, some of their trauma in like therapy, you know what I mean? They're they're unpacking the, the intricacies and the, the idiosyncrasies of certain relationships with people to an unbiased third party. And I feel like that was a little bit what Betsy was doing with the alternative universe, Quanin. That does not mean that if she feels that she has something to say, that she should not say it to the 616 quantum, uh, our Quanen, the, the Krakoan Quanon, because that's that's just what you do. If you find yourself being the guilty party, the one with something to apologize for, you can't just get it out of yourself to make yourself feel better. It has to leave an impact.
6: Abs- yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's something to say, uh, I think everybody can kind of relate to this idea of it's easier to tell strangers things that you don't know and that you don't really have a personal connection with even if they might share the same body, face, and name of somebody that you do have a connection with, it's easier to tell somebody who's either like faceless or someone who has no personal stake in the entire situation your situation, and it makes it easier to understand, all right, this is what I should be saying, this is what I want to say, and this is what I know I have to say. And I think I agree that it's a really great stepping stone for Betsy to apologize to 616 Quanon, but this alternate Quanin has no stakes in anything that Betsy does or it's an alternate timeline it's not the timeline we care about. It seemed in the last issue Betsy was so guilt ridden she wanted to apologize to this alternate Quanin that they didn't have the shared body experience in that universe it overall felt weird that she was like so gung ho of apologizing to this alternate quanin that I'm really interested to see how she's going to apologize to our actual Quanon.
7: Well it, it definitely looks like we may have that opportunity soon. I had a
8: question uh, for the both of you, because I don't know that it ever came across my eyes in the in the history of publication that I read, as limited as it is, but I was unfamiliar that Angel and Betsy had dated in the past.
6: Yes, so I don't know full much about it, but the basic gist of it is, both of their parents were Hellfire Club members, they're both really rich and affluent, they both have a, had a very similar upbringing, and their relationship kind of made sense in the way that they were like, hey, you're kind of into the same things that I am in. We have both the same taste. Let's date. And they went through a lot together. Their relationship is one of the relationships that a lot of people do enjoy and have seen. And I think that if I have read it, and when I do go back to go read all of these issues, I know that's something that I will enjoy because it gives Warren a lot more personality and depth than being a womanizer or being, you know, someone who's just vapid and tossing around money i think betsy's a really good character for him to bounce off of so it's a relationship that's really special to a lot of people especially because when warren was under the control of apocalypse as one of his horsemen uh betsy was the one who kind of like broke him out of that and yeah, there was they've they've gone through a lot together. So it was a really nice callback to that relationship in that alternate universe.
8: Well, I like that. That definitely makes me like it more. I I don't think that anybody should end up with Angel because you know we've if we've said it once on the show, we've said it a thousand times. He is he is the quintessential himbo, and nobody nobody ends up with the himbo. You know what I mean? Like always a bridesmaid, never a bride, sort of deal. I think, I think Warren is just kind of going to be somebody's like side piece long term, you know, and, and it's a, it's a, it's an unfortunate read, but you know, he's just so handsome, but there's just really not going, a lot going on up there.
6: No, and that's, you know, unfortunate for him. But speaking of, you know, not a lot of things going on up there, how do you two feel about the Excalibur team hiding Betsy's return, not only from the council, but from her own twin brothers and her older brother... I was uh, baffled a little that they thought they would A, get away with this and B, what exactly their plan was. I'm so confused as to why they thought they were going to be able to hide Betsy's return. And can I just, can I just gush for a moment over Emma's outfit? (laughs) I mean...
7: Oh, and with the hair
8: pulled
6: back.
7: Yes, her outfit is absolutely fabulous. It has that neck thing that she's always wearing with all of her outfits and yeah it's it's just such a sleek look for her
8: how many issues of the reign of x if any you know because I, I don't believe that saturnine is going to continue to play this large role outside of the events of excalibur i think she had her time in ten of swords and she squandered it entirely in my opinion but having said that i i want to keep an eye out in the future for how many issues feature both saturnine and emma because while i love emma's outfit. And I love Emma's hair pulled back neat. I think that part of the impetus for a, a different specific streamlined costume and a different hairstyle was as not to confuse the two of them on panel, though they didn't share any panels together. Uh, because there was a second where, I, like, and it was a split second, because eventually I saw like Kyle pointed out the cutout and the bodice. And I was like, okay, that is clearly an Emma trait. But for a minute, I was like, Saturnine, really? Like she hasn't gotten up from her chair since the end of 10 of swords, like two months ago. And now she put on a different outfit, pulled her hair back and came to London? England? No.
6: No. We call that petty. She's
4: My girl is petty.
6: She is literally throwing the biggest temper tantrum because she couldn't fuck Brian, and her plan to fuck Brian and make him Captain Britain did not succeed, so there's that. I also really like these Rachel moments, especially Rachel lending Rogue some of her power. It was a really interesting tieback to a character who was part of the original Excalibur team and has kind of a pretty big stake in the events that go on in uh, other worlds so i am i was really happy to be able to see rachel do something and kind of this aftermath of how the excalibur the current excalibur team is trying to deal with betsy
8: you know and and what's so funny about that your your mention of rachel having been originally a member of excalibur a founding member of excalibur I've read in the past month or two for uh, secondary coverage for our uh, upcoming YouTube channel or potentially incredibly popular currently running YouTube channel, if you're listening to this in the future, I... Have been reading over a thousand pages of Claremont Excalibur. I've seen so much of classic Rachel in that regard, and yet, not to jump books here, but seeing Rachel in her X Factor uniform was so synonymous with X Factor for me. I was like, "It's so nice of X Factor to lend Rachel to Excalibur." Completely ignorant to the fact that Rachel was a founding member of Excalibur, so I didn't even make that connection, despite the fact that I I have been bombarded with that backlog of material for months now. I'm just like, nope, she belongs to X-Factor now. That's it.
7: Absolutely. <laughs> on the topic that you brought up, Jonah, about what, how we thought that the Excalibur team thought that they could hide Betsy, I kind of agree with them that they needed to figure out what was going on, because what we saw of her in that alternate universe, that was the Betsy that we've been familiar with, whereas this Betsy is definitely acting weird. And I'm actually kind of surprised that Rachel wasn't picking up much on it.
8: You, mm, you know, and I th- I think part of that is why Rachel made the the potentiality for Rachel to sense it is probably why she was written out of the issue so early on. It was pretty much just like, all right, hon, I gotta I gotta lend you some powers and I gotta jet, you know, because I don't think I don't think that Rogue with Rachel's powers would have been that acutely aware of not only Betsy stalking them for the entire issue, but the the complexity of what's wrong with Betsy. But Rachel definitely would have picked that out, and so the second I saw her. Like, all right, I'm giving you powers and bouncing. And I was like, something is not going to be right.
6: Absolutely, and part of why Rachel hasn't said much is that because Rachel's not prying herself. Betsy being psychic, Rachel being psychic, a lot of the psychic, you know, unwritten but written rules are you don't really you're not supposed to be prying through people's heads without their permission. You're not supposed to be digging around and figuring out what's wrong because it can lead down a really slippery slope of you invading somebody's privacy. So Rachel kind of does mention that she knows that Betsy is upset and it's there's not anything else wrong with her but she's not digging to find out why she's upset because it's not her place that's for Betsy to talk about if she wants to so and I think the reason why we gave Rogue the psychic powers was that so that on the Excalibur team Betsy was the resident psychic so now we can have a psychic for a few days if that so that we can have moments like that and to help them understand you know what's going on with Betsy I and that's kind of like the big question of this issue what's wrong with with Betsy nobody really seems to know and the people that could know don't want to dig because it's not right and it goes against you know the ethics of psychics
7: well I mean Emma tries to dig but Betsy literally slaps away her her power signature
6: that is very true and I want to hearken to a moment way back and through a story that now has not aged well in the slightest but in there are some issues in Chris Claremont's Uncanny run where Storm and Emma body swap. And when Storm is in Emma's body and she's in the mind of a psychic, when you are a psychic, especially, I guess, an X Men telepath or psychic, whatever you want to call them. They have to constantly be on the lookout of not entering people's minds accidentally. It is extreme like extreme talent and like a learned ability to not enter people's minds right away if they don't have a mind shield and they're not trained in psychic defense. So it could be that Emma was trying to pry a little, but it also could be kind of an accidental thing where she purposely, you know, didn't (laughs) didn't prevent herself from entering (laughs) her mind. Emma only Emma knows what Emma is doing and that's the way that Emma likes it
7: yeah I can see that I, I definitely see that
8: <laughs> oh for sure
6: oh you know oh whoops you I just accidentally slipped in while I'm here let's talk about this
8: <laughs> and
6: I think Emma could be a very comical therapist, but should probably should not be. Um, after this moment with Emma, the gallery team is still trying to return to quote unquote normal normalcy. They're trying to just have a dinner kind of like icing Betsy out like a parent would when a child is throwing a temper tantrum. Like, we're going to eat without you if you don't come sit here. Your food's going to get cold. And like, (laughs) Betsy's kind of just like huffing off in the corner. And Maggie accidentally just waltzes in, which... Maggie is amazing, is perfection, like Chef's Kisses, beautiful, perfect character. How did you guys feel about this moment of Brian coming back and learning that his twin sister is back?
7: I felt kind of heartbroken for him because he's he's missed her obviously, and to know that she didn't reach out to him when she came back, that must have been pretty uh pretty rough on his on his feelings and the fact that Maggie was the one who told him instead of the team that I'm, I'm sure he felt a little betrayed that they hadn't talked to him
8: you know I I definitely understand the feeling of betrayal but at the same time and this is gonna sound hypocritical of me and and potentially uh, potentially you know wishy-washy but I myself uh, don't really keep secrets as best as I can help it um, I believe in you know getting off for everybody always you know to quote Donald Glover um, Nobody can turn around and tell someone something about me i told them uh, but that being said i do believe in the protection of people's feelings by way of like lies of omission i am not saying that i would not ever have told them that betsy came back but if i thought that there was something wrong with her and if she were the leader of my team and she were unable to fill that role and that duty and she could potentially be harmful to those who are closest to her. I might keep that under the belt, too. You know, just for a little while. I definitely understand the not immediately ringing the bell that she's back.
6: And I get that. I really do. I can hear what you and Kyler are saying, and I think the council probably didn't need to know right away until they were able to figure out and give a full analysis slash report. I think Brian is a little bit different because he even says I've known Betsy since day one. That's his twin. And not to say that all twins have a very special connection and that they're, you know, they're have these weird twin powers that only twins have, even though they are twins and they do have weird twin powers because one's a mutant and one's the you know champion of other world currently under the mantle of Captain uh Captain Avalon. Brian should have been in the know-how because that is, you know, I think of the there are, if, if my understanding of Brian is correct, Brian has two not counting Maggie because that's his daughter, but there are only two people in the entire world that but are you know of the utmost importance to Brian and that's Megan and Betsy and I think I would have just told Brian so that Brian can come help don't tell Jamie because you don't tell Jamie anything as we kind of
8: saw <laughs> Yeah, Jamie, Jamie could do nothing to help the situation. Jamie. Jamie only makes things worse. Jamie actually might have made things worse because he prepped a physical clone body for Betsy, as revealed several issues ago. And as revealed in this issue,
6: he has no idea where it is. Yeah, can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> Betsy kind of is playing this weird game with Rogue where she's like, Tag, you're it. Come get me. And she, like, psychically moves Brian through the Cocoing Gate to Avalon where he's fast asleep, uh, which is weird and fascinating. Um, but so uh, on this mission, the team decides to split up. Rogue and Richter go to Apocalypse's um, laboratory. In Kokoa and Gambit goes to go talk to Monarch slash Jamie. And that entire sequence with Jamie was so A funny, but B like I, I he Jamie is a character who's just mad, but also like I don't think he fully realizes like how like he could just correct things that he wants to be right. Like I I found it so funny that he kept saying, you told me not to make another Betsy, so I didn't, so if there is another Betsy it's not my problem, That it's not my fault that it happened, because I didn't do it, and I listened, but I did have a clone of her ready to go and then they walk over to the sarcophagus that was supposed to be holding the body, and it's like, huh there was supposed to be a body in there
7: (laughs) yeah, that that was that was a little oops (laughs) Oops. but still, he he was keeping a body inside of an Iron Maiden...
6: I, nobody <laughs> nobody's ever claiming that jamie is the sane one and that jamie has good ideas
7: that is true that is true but in the same room he also has morgan Fay just lying in stasis on a slab
6: that and that's something i want to ask you two about uh, we see that morgan LeFay is alive question mark she's there and she's still on the slab after where apocalypse left her for a lot of issues <laughs> He's just in the basement laboratory. Gambit tells Jamie that they should potentially release Morgan Le Fay so that the Coven of Akaba would leave them alone and kind of be fine. I understand what Gambit is trying to do and to get to try to solve this problem, but I think it's going to lead to way more problems, as Jamie points out. How do you two feel about this idea that Gambit has of releasing Morgan Le Fay?
8: Huh. I think it's a well. I think it's the right decision. Do I think it's a good decision? No, certainly not. I think that first off, if I were Morgan Le Fay and I found out that my would-be captor and abuser just fucking left in the middle of torturing and abusing me, I would be a little hurt. I'd be like, what did I do? You know what I mean? Um, so I feel like in that case, she's just going to have more questions when she wakes up than anything, but her wrath is going to be incredible. And it's not like it's not like Morgan Le Fay because don't forget Morgan Le Fay was was pretty much the big bad of volume 1 in a sense. She is plenty competent and capable of wreaking havoc. So, I think to let her go is just inviting more chaos and undue stress and tension into the world of Excalibur.
7: Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. I don't agree with... Oh, jeez. How do I go about saying this? Uh, I don't agree with keeping her captive like this, because this is kind of grotesque. Um, At the same time, she is such a threat to Avalon and to Krakoa that I'm not sure that letting her go is a safe idea. But there has to be some method to maybe take away her power so that she's not as much of a threat and not keeping her a prisoner like this.
8: <laughs> I you know, and I know I know this this time every week we sit down and we talk about X Men. That's what we do. It's what we've done in and out for months and years, depending on who's who's been on the show, that's what Sundays are for, but I literally heard you say, take her powers away. And I was like, energy bending, right, and can do that. Wait, nope, that's that's a television show. That is avatar.
2: <laughs> nope,
0: that's
8: one our one that is a long. Uh oh. No, I. I mean, I do. I do agree, though, that there there has to be some sort of way to dampen her abilities. You know, maybe maybe not take them away because that's cruel and unusual. And you know, I feel like part of it's not one of the tenets of the Krakowin laws for mutants. But I feel like because we've seen de- depower, you know, arcs in the past. You know, whether it's House of M or whether it was artificial. You know, we've seen mutants depowered, and it's basically basically Basically, like declawing your cat. It's just not right.
7: Yeah, that is a good point. I didn't think of that when I when I spoke, and we definitely don't want to be evoking the actions of uh, the pretender.
6: No, so. absolutely not. <laughs> so I, I I can see that point. My suggestion would be kind of just handcuff her to Leech and call it a day and just be like, you know, just have Leech uh, <laughs> absorb all her powers so she can't really use them, but she can still, you know, walk around and do stuff. I, I think it's better to find a little more uh respectable way because what apocalypse did was not right um but it's okay i'm gonna make it all right anyway pack your bags up and leave oh my god i was
8: screaming i was screaming in my head just now to do it and i'm so glad you got there (laughs)
6: um so let's talk about apocalypse for a little bit so after the ten of swords crossover event apocalypse was like bye y'all i'm going back to my family see ya (laughs) And we haven't seen Apocalypse since. I think the conversation of Rogue and Richter talking about the morality and the deeds of Apocalypse slash A was really interesting. And I wanted to get your guys' perspective on if this changed your opinion or your view of Apocalypse with Richter saying he's older than all of us combined. He's done plenty of bad things, more bad things than we have done and many good things that we have done. He was somebody who was trying to learn our history and for us to teach and this is the moment where our history starts and it's because of him mm. uh, you know
8: i i have made no secret in in previous coverage of excalibur that a becoming this grand sorcerer was my was my favorite part of not only Excalibur for its first volume, but also just the Dawn of X for that matter. I thought the, the concept of introducing the audience to mutant magic was so fresh and so new and so brilliant that when Apocalypse or A makes his exit at the end of Ten of Swords, I was devastated. I was gutted. And I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was Excalibur 15 where we saw Richter dealing with that same recoil. And I was like, I, I get you. I, I feel you. You know we are we are both handsome latinos who 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 miss their 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 daddy for lack of a better word um because that's what a is he was the the spiritual you know singularity for excalibur. I think that Richter taking that mantle over was the most exciting thing to come out of this issue for me. It had been teased, it had been hinted, there was you know, context and subtext for it, but I think the the potentiality for him to embrace that role in future issues and bring some magic back to this book, like true magic, not otherworld shenanigans, is incredible.
7: Yeah, and this, the stuff that Richter is talking about, about how they're learning to commune with each other, through their powers. It's it's what we're seeing in the other books, too, with with new mutants uh teaching about synergy and sword uh working with their own uh matrix of powers and the five. So it's we're just seeing another version of that through this mutant magic. And that's that's pretty cool how all of this is kind of melding together, even though they're all separate books. I do understand Rogue's hesitancy towards accepting this this direction because of the way that um, she was used by Apocalypse. So it, it, it does make sense. Maybe this is, is kind of like a separating the art from the artist situation. Would that be? I, I can absolutely
6: okay. see that as a really good comparison to Apocalypse. You can appreciate the things that he's trying to do for me, in kind in trying to not only advance them in their history and their understanding of where they came from, but also to ensure their survival without, you know, liking the methods that he's used.
8: Hmm. You know, I, I, I'm curious to see what this kind of magical potency looks like in Richter's hands, because I feel like it is inarguable that Richter is a, a more solid and stable moral standing than Apocalypse was, you know what I mean?
7: Yeah, I, I definitely agree that he is... Definitely more stable. Um, he he does have that grounding. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was trying to think of a good pun, and I was like, "There's a pun here about the earth or something." <laughs>
6: he's unmovable. He's unshakable. No, he's grounded. <laughs>
7: yeah i i think that he would be able to better use this without um tainting it i i think i can see
6: that i don't know a lot about richter but i do appreciate that he seems to have a better understanding of a more general concept of morals and ethics uh, but still wants to continue the magical research that apocalypse you know started i also think that as i i personally think that they definitely Bone. It was there were way too many suggestive um, uh, poses and arts for me to be like. There's definitely something a little more fun going on there that I fully support. And only like, I just wish it was on panel. My uh, <laughs> my other favorite thing was well, Rector put in the time and he got. He was the only person named in Apocalypse's will, and <laughs> he got everything, which that is uh, quite the feat. Is there is there anything from Apocalypse's stuff that you? You would want.
8: Um his his volume one of Excalibur um outfit in its entirety. Yep. Ooh. That's the one. That's um, it.
7: <laughs> for for me, I, I just love magic stuff, so I want his grimoire. His
6: grimoire would be a lot of fun to use. And I I think it's so interesting that in this world that Marvel is creating in the entirety of Marvel, that magic and mutantum can go hand in hand and you can can be both. If you want to become a master magician, you want to overtake Stephen Strange as the Sorcerer Supreme, you can. You don't have to be a human, you can be a mutant. And I think that's really interesting that we're now getting into this book where it's blending together. <laughs>
7: so, uh, speaking of Stephen Strange... Um... Isn't have you noticed that Mutant Magic doesn't seem to have the same kind of um sacrifice that the other magic users in the Marvel universe currently are restricted with?
8: Um, you know what? I, I I would personally say like it does and it doesn't, because I feel like they've been if there's one thing about the inclusion of Mutant Magic into Excalibur and the trickle down effect it's had on on subsidiary books, is that they seem to be playing it a little fast and loose with what kind of sacrifice is required. You know, at first we needed first we needed these, you know, selenite crystals that were actual mutant oh. bones, and, and ah, then, right. then, then we needed to kill all of the externals. But, I mean, at the same time, then when Richter was falling through the gate, you know, Apocalypse was just kind of able to materialize him through the other end with no sacrifice, you know what I mean? So, in, in that regard, I feel like I feel like it's a sliding scale of you know the the quality or quantity of a sacrifice in relation to the to the power if, to the to the to the power required. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly.
7: Okay, yeah. That 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 does make sense. And it could be possible that we're just
6: not seeing the sacrifices or the side effects of what's going to happen from using all of this magic. I I would like to even just like talking about it and thinking about it right right now. I like to think that to bring up a character that's not in this book, but does have magic Ileana of her magic you know is learned from limbo and we don't often go to limbo so we I don't think we often see the effects of her using her magic because it stems from limbo and Limbo's, you know, timey-wimey, Jeremy Barryme, all kinds of fucked, so the sacrifices required <laughs> for that kind of magic we're not going to see because it's literally all over the place. But I would think that mutants using magic because there's a definite connection to other world. I would be really interested to see if it, you know, stems from other world because I think a lot of magic comes from a source. And if the mutant magic in my theory comes from other world, what is the sacrifice on the other world? What what is what's going on over there if they're pulling from so much magic because it has to come from somewhere right hey
0: everybody nico here one last time and in this last segment sort of more of a state of the union than anything myself blake jonah and josh discuss x-men legends number one now i wouldn't say that we necessarily talk about the actual book itself So much of this issue is sort of a foregone conclusion that has been hinted at or discussed publicly, and that's kind of what this project is about. More than anything, we discuss the merits of how this project works. Now, for all of the criticism that we give how X-Men Legends is coming out, I do want to point out that something that wasn't able to be salvaged due to some audio difficulties you might notice in this next segment included us saying how if this book were given a little bit more... ...cohesion into the current X-Men line, it would probably feel a little bit stronger. So we did enjoy the book itself, but there is something almost unfair to how the book is being presented... ...where it's expected to just sit on the shelf and looks a lot like one of the X-Men facsimile editions that have been released by Marvel. So whether it's that it feels a little anachronistic for a time all about evolution... Or, it's that the presentation of the book made it look a little bit different than we were necessarily expecting. X-Men Legends gets a bit more of a discussion than it does a review. We hope you guys enjoy this segment anyway. Now, if you like what you guys hear, you'll probably like what you see, so don't forget to check out our YouTube over at X's for Podcast as well as our Twitter of the same name. If you want to help shape the show and where we're going in the future, don't forget to check out our Patreon where you guys can subscribe and get some pretty cool behind-the-scenes stuff. And, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to drop us a review over on Apple podcasts guys as always check out this last segment keep those and gateways open keep those mutant lights lit and we'll see you on the other side Hey everybody and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico and you guys can find me online at Nico Action. That's NicoAction. That's N I C O A C T I O N on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Blake, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BTMorgan85.
5: I'm Josh Wheel, as always you can find me at a Sleep at the Wheel W E I L on Twitter and at a sleep at the wheel.com and for the next 2 years as a Democrat running for US Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me at Wheel for US Senate W E I L the number 4 US Senate on Twitter and Wheel for US
6: And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. And we hope you survive this experience just like Adam survived the onslaught of attacks from Scott and Alex, because it is a known rule in the X-Universe that if you are biologically related to a Summers, you can't be affected by their mutant powers.
0: So first thing, okay, first thing. I want to mention that we're going to be covering X-Men Legends number one by Fabian Nicieza. Now, we have also made a donation in the total value of the team reading the book to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. So I do hope that everybody is making sure that you are realizing in this incredibly trying time that it's not just the big two that are seeing some trouble with their publication. It's comic shops. It's the independent creators. They're all struggling. And the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, uh, in part established by Neil Gaiman, has been around forever and works to help people. They had a change of management a number of years ago, everything things looking real good. And between our donation last time to a fund created by Shelley Bond, and now to a fund headed by Neil Gaiman, I think we can kind of agree that the Vertigo team from the 90s is here to save comics, and I just want to get that out of the way. Now, to discuss the book at hand, uh, okay, so X-Men Legends exists to give creators who might not necessarily be the top sellers anymore a chance to go back and finish out some danglers, right? X-Danglers have always been a big thing. Josh I know you are like the king of coming at the x Dangers. I
5: I thought that this series was designed um, to allow people to finish stories that Scott Lobdell ran over with a truck back in the early 90s.
0: Yes, yes. It was a very big truck named the X-Office. So I- Bob Harris
5: gave it to him for his 18th birthday.
0: And it was a very good time. Like, I'll be honest. I really do like a lot of Scott Lobdell. I really do. I, growing up, you know, so growing up, I always had this weird relationship with that kind of change over time. Everybody always made it sound like Jim Lee came in and was like, no, that... Bad Claremont! Get away! Get away, Mr. Claremont! And, like, chase him away like a cat, right? But it turns out it's a lot more complicated than that. It actually sources back for the changes in the industry, for, uh, in general, the entirety of comics. So, I want to find out, how do, what do you guys know about the Claremont changeover? Are you guys aware of the tumult thing?
5: I mean, Mark Wade said it best, which is, Bob Harris is the fucking Antichrist.
0: I believe that might be a fact. Now, Blake, we talk a lot about x history on this show, right? Are you as aware of X history, uh, like the way Claremont left, the why Claremont left, the how Claremont left? No, no, not that's honestly, uh, I don't pay a lot of
9: attention to that uh, because I I don't know, like these guys I like, it makes me sad when I find out that they like hate each other and may never work together again. And as much as I do love drama, I don't know, I just don't, I don't focus a lot on that. But yes, I'm kind of clueless on that. I didn't know uh, the other day you mentioned it, I think, in, in our group chat. And I was like, I was like, oh, like, I just never knew that they had a falling out and that there was like Lee Claremont drama.
5: If, if you have Amazon Prime, and this is for Blake and anyone watching, I strongly recommend to go watch Chris Claremont's X-Men, the documentary that was done um, on his time on the book a few years back, and it's available on Amazon Prime, and it's really good. And I mean, it has a lot of great stuff. The best is just Claremont, Wheezy, and Anagenti sitting on a couch and reminiscing. And like, I could watch that just on loop for hours and hours. Uh, but it's a very, very good and really helpful helps you to understand some of the dynamics and blind spots of the creator because like some creators like rob liefeld still haven't seen around that blind spot 25 years later like they're still adamant that like their take on it in the early 90s and late 80s was correct
0: which oh gosh now jonah i know you haven't gotten there so from the distance from this outset how do you feel about knowing that this is kind of touching on an era of great tumult for the country
6: it's a really interesting thing to think about because, as someone who doesn't have the full scope of X history of behind the scenes as well as, you know, X stories, I don't want to necessarily say canon because I know a lot of things that are canonized can change. But it's really interesting because it's something that. I think when your artistic team is constantly butting heads, you're going to see it in the writing. I think that if you're not on the same page or you're not able to be cordial with one another, you're going to see stories that are sloppy, don't make a lot of sense, are trying to get back at other people because people are trying to be petty and be like, well, I'm going to use your character. I'm going to do this to them. And it's like, you can you can play. You don't have to like people. You can still play nice and you know not ruin characters or not do really bad stories that that is the, that is an option. That is the I, goal.
0: I, I know people don't, don't think that, but it's like, you could just not. Well, now I want to point out, cause you're, you're like, oh, the interpersonal drama is a thing, but I'm like, let's also not forget sometimes creators just hate characters. So like Garth Ennis guns for Daredevil. He hates him. He actually purposely tortures him in Punisher stories. Which is
6: weird, in my opinion, <laughs> because it's like, well, yes, would I love to see um, Matt be tortured? Absolutely. But also... Oh, he's already Catholic. <laughs> I know, it's, it's punishment enough, I know.
9: I thought but... the only person that hated Matt was himself. I
0: don't... Oh, and Lester. Yes, but and Lester, I mean, Lester's a different kind of hate.
5: We're far enough away from these stories now and that it's been clear for a long time that the overall quality of writing and really at Marvel in general, right? The 90s was a drop-off from the 80s, just Absolutely. across the board, uh, uh, across all titles, and then picked back up again with new, new creative renaissance in some areas um, on a number of different titles. titles. Titles in the uh, 2000s when they started allowing, when Bendis started coming onto the Avengers books, when um, the Ultimates line started happening, when Grant Morrison uh, started his new X-Men, you get to see in a number of areas. Straczynski took Thor. You get to see a number of areas that were the best thing that had happened on those titles since creators in the 80s, since Walt Simonson in the 80s, since Chris Claremont in the 80s, since.
0: But like it's it's such a longer time than that because if we want to like take a look at it more specifically new x-men started in 2001 new avengers started in 2005 so that that stagger that took Five years for the positive books to kind of make their way across the board, and I'll be honest, yeah. the blue was off. Go look at the...
5: some two thousand three, two thousand four Avengers books, like some yeah, Chuck Johnson Austin for a stretch in there. Chuck Austin, there is some rough stuff. No, nope, like, thank you. Search for she- <laughs> book is not good. And what search even... for anything in Marvel is usually if a title starts search for well, character, I'll say uh,
0: some of them are pretty good. I, uh, I think the problem is when that's your focus, when your focus is put a character back in the book as opposed to change the narration of the book, right? But when we think about this sort of staggered nature of the way these creators came and went at Marvel, I sometimes don't feel people remember that they've done this before. They said to Chris Claremont, hey, buddy, do you want to finish your stories? And he said, yeah, I do. And they gave him X-Men Forever. And that was a hit. And then they said to Wheezy, Wheezy, you want to go back and finish some stories? And she was like, yes. And they were like, X-Factor Forever. And I guess that sold copies. And then they said, New Mutants Forever and that was weird. And I feel like this whole, this time it's canon. Like, but this time it's canon! But this time it counts! Like, I get so tired of this sort of endless Donna Summer. This time I know it's for real Rick Astley songwriter loop that we wind up on with these books. Now, So I, you're saying it wasn't their last dance? It was not
5: their last dance. Some of
0: these are very bad
5: girls. For me, this book here actually felt less like X-Men Forever and more like the retroactives that DC published around flash around that first year of flashpoint okay where they're like sorry we fucked up and got rid of a whole bunch of characters and don't know where to put them or even write about them anymore um but so here are some one shots by the original creative teams back from like the best time that used to write these and they're gonna kind of write some stories from that era that just kind of fit in somewhere in their original run so you can have a new story about characters you like because we because bob harris now works at dc and so we don't know what the fuck we doing anymore. It's weird how Marvel went from like totally almost unreadable fucking with characters for an incredibly long time. And then that got better as soon as Bob Harris left. And then he went to DC and DC started having the exact same problems. Like it's one of the weirdest coincidences ever.
0: Well, you know, it's the, it's the Nick Cage correlation causation thing. There have been more car accidents since 1988 and there have been more Nick Cage movies since 1988, but you have to ask yourself now. I've updated that for my students and I use Taylor Swift albums and cyber hacking since 1989. So, you know, I just don't think Taylor Swift is responsible for all the cyber hacking since 1989. But I do think that Fabian Nicieza is responsible for all of the Adam X since ever.
5: And we're told that this is canon. This is going to have been canon. So all along. At the end of the final issue, is everyone just going to get memory wiped? Uh, So, okay. The
0: plot of this issue, and I mean, it's taken us 10 minutes to even get here. The plot of this issue is one day Scott and Alex are monologuing on the lawn in great exposition about what they do and don't enjoy. And Adam X is in a cornfield and Cable shows up and is like, I'm your uncle, nephew or whatever. And Adam <laughs> X is like,
5: not, it's, it's Alex in his best himbo clothes oh, it, it, ever. It, Alex it's in his best, best clothes. stupid costume he's ever had. It's the, the best costume he's ever character. had. The best ever. costume. Best
0: costume ever. And Adam X is like bird things and Cable is like robot arm and then the Shi'ar are like kill kill and then Corsair is like hi I'm daddy shoot you. That's I the whole issue. <laughs> <laughs> no, Adam. hold on.
5: I want old man Cable to call him Uncle Adam so bad so bad before this is over. You
6: forgot the part where Raza and Hepzibah just kind of show up as assassins. <laughs> <laughs> sexy cat lady. What a sexy skunk lady. Sexy skunk, skunk lady. lady. I was
9: like
5: what? Cat no. R- uh, stop cat sexy lady. Cat lady and That's skunk this is not stuff, okay right yeah, Happy Le Pew is the only sexist skunk we have. Sex cat. I don't remember, but there's, there's
0: a relationship there. So, okay, the plot of this issue is sort of a foregone conclusion. I was asked by somebody on the team what I thought of this book, and I said, for what it is, it exists. But what I read in it was no more surprising than a book ending on the last page. I really, truly felt we got nothing new about Scott and Alex together, nothing new about Scott and Alex together from that time. This kind of feels like a time machine. And I don't know how I feel about the anachronism of this. This does not feel like it belongs in the current X-Men line to me. And so I really tried to
9: like this and and I don't hate it, but it, so when I got into when young me, grade school me at the grocery store and you could buy X-Men comics, you could buy comics at 7-Eleven and gas stations. We would bring these comics to school and it was like this symbol of status. Like, look what I have. Like, let's look at this at recess. And we would read these issues out of order because it's, you, you were never able to get like one, two, three, four, five, you know, you had like issue three, six, nine, and it was still like, we all thought it was the coolest shit ever. And I got really excited about this announcement thinking like, Oh, like the nostalgia factor of it, the art, like looking at the art, I was like, yes, this is like the X-Men comics that like I randomly found it at gas stations that my parents sometimes let me buy or that I was mowing the lawn and getting, you know, like 15 bucks a week allowance. And, And I would buy a few issues of comics with this limited money I had and so I was I was really excited for it. For me like the saving grace was the art and the colors.
5: But And I don't want to necessarily praise the art but Booth and Corona have a very 90s image inspired, Lee inspired feel they have a lot of those extra heavy lines. Um, and- extra lines on the face to make everybody look like an old grandpa. Thing. Yes. But hold on how, how can you argue with dialogue like this? So little brother, want to get some fresh air for our workout? Sure Scott, that'll make a nice change of pace from a training routine in the danger room. It's so nice to be talking like real normal human beings is. I may have added that last part.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I actually didn't think you did. I thought that was
5: from the book.
0: (laughs) I still love it. It it sparks joy. It's hard because I love X-Men Forever and I know it's just the Claremont version of this. And I love, you know, X-Men First Class, which is just the Jeff Parker version of this. And I, you know, I'm a big go back and tell the cute story. I'm a big Bradshaw fan and I enjoyed his Spidey work you know like going back and telling a cool classic story is a lot of fun but I'm unsure where this book fits in now are you telling me that they're all just going to have remembered that Adam X is their brother this whole
5: time and forgot it so here is my meta take on this not like my take on the quality of the book but my take right. on like how this fits into 2021 publishing of X comic in the Hox Pox era is that you know we start X Men 1 with the Summers family. And there was a lot of fan response that they wanted Adam Max, even though he'd never been confirmed as a Summers brother. And Nietzsche came out and he did interviews interview saying that that was absolutely his intention, that he was laying the groundwork. That was his third Summers brother. That was who Sinister was referring to, you know, in all of those veiled cryptic comments he made, you know, to Scott about your brothers, plural. And then Scott did his typical dumbassery of like, wait, did he say brothers? Oh, that must have oh, been a mistake. I must, have, must have not have noticed been- the he truth. Brother. Like, which also was so pitch perfect in this. Okay, back to the book. The fact that they all used their powers on each other and then couldn't figure out what it meant that they couldn't hurt each other is classic Scott Summers dumbassery that is like actual like on-brand canon for the character because he but has moments like that all the goddamn time. In but the
0: then car. that puts him being in charge of children as a danger. That like actually makes me worse. I love that we're just, he's just laughing maniacally to himself about how much he loves this comic.
5: I didn't think I would. Like, I opened it to the first page and was like, oh, fuck, this is gonna hurt. Like... And then I loved it anyway. <laughs> and honestly, I've been so busy. I had no idea that this, I thought this was a one shot. I thought no, that we were going to get like 10 page little mini stories, like one by Claremont, one by Nietzsche like, I didn't realize that this is an ongoing. So I get more of this. Yeah, well, it's an that's-
9: ongoing, but it, I think we'll get like two of these and then it'll switch. Is that what? Yeah, that's what it sounds like.
0: Now. So here's a question, Jonah, you don't have any of the back. You don't have the Mr. Sinister era. You're somewhere around Uncanny 180, and Mr. Sinister doesn't start being a concept until the 220s and isn't really a thing until the 230s and 240s. So you're
5: pretty far away from this. Even in Inferno, Sinister is... Sinister Inferno is not at all, he's not defined at all. He is this still kind of like cryptic, mysterious, like he has a hand in this and then like it gets out of hand. So he's like deuces and leaves. And then Gambit did it. Yeah, yeah. He's gotten like retro written a lot, but he doesn't really start becoming until Nisieza and Lodella are playing with him and and Mackie in the 90s. Mackie does some good stuff.
0: Absolutely. So Jonah, how does this read for you as somebody without any of this background in the series
5: well i look at adam x and
6: i look at what he's working with and i'm like huh this is just like a douchey less furry saber tooth yeah okay you know, he's got the beautiful curly locks. Looks like a douchey frat bro. He's got like a little midriff peek when he's like flinging a scythe
0: at the at the snake. I'm like, yeah, he's hot, but like-
5: He is drawn like Sabretooth and Jinko.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I'll be to be honest with you. If the you want to attack Adam X for anything, let it never be his crop tops. I think Adam X and crop tops is fine. We don't have enough men rocking crop tops in superhero comics. And if Adam X is going to be the lone bird fuck that does it, then let him be the lone bird fuck it (laughs) does but
6: for a comic where i don't have any of the prerequisite knowledge to understand where this is coming from i still looked at this and went huh wow this is where they wanted to go with it i was like where is the where's where's the uniqueness in this
5: where's where's the newness but you have to take a trip in the wayback machine and also remember that this is before deadly genesis right so there was not a third summer's brother yet this is pre-game right because
0: Well, because there have been so many possible Third Summers brothers.
5: Yeah. there there were a lot. Gambit was a possible Third Summers brother. Adam X. Adam X was the one that they were literally, like, this was Nisieza's plan. Like, Nisieza was laying these things in, in what introducing him in X-Force and bringing him over into, um, in the X-Men 39 where he saves uh, Corsair's dad and they have their bonding moment in the snow. Like, there's all of these things he was leading up to. He was building that. Um, you know, and they fed into it in X-Men with Sinister going to help Scott in the woods and dropping the cryptic clue where he says brothers instead of brother. Like it had all, this was getting late in the early 90s and then it all just got fuck. And Well,
0: but Nisieza is so responsible for so many of those himself. Psylocke, Psylocke and the body switch versus the remolding and revanche and that whole era. That was never what Claremont intended. It was the body shop where they reshape you. And that's specifically specifically... specifically what it was in canon. And Nisezi came in and said something different. And that's sort of the nature of shared comics. You don't get to be precious about a story for 25 years.
5: Yeah. But also when writers are playing with other people's toys, you're supposed to go into it. And this is like, I think one of the big criticisms against Dan Slott nowadays is that you're supposed to go into it and say, take what was done before and go, yes, and not no, but right? Like, you're not supposed to take previous stories and go, you know, and like, start re, unless they were really bad at me, like, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. But um, you're supposed to build and enrich, not like rewrite and take down or, or and and that's that's a criticism of I mean, I think that's a fair criticism of some of what, you know, Nicias is a rework at that time. Um, but 90s in general, I mean, ugh. X-Men number one, X-Men number one, Mutant Genesis, the Jim Lee, Chris Claremont, which I can't like. Yes, Chris Claremont literally wrote it, but goddamn, he spent 130 plus issues rehabbing Magneto and giving him incredible character development. And, and then Lee him. said, bad guy. And Rob Liefeld, and Rob Liefeld literally says this in the Chris Claremont's X-Men doc. Like they came in and like, they were going to the mall and like the characters were talking to each other to- too much and like <laughs> what the hell like people want to see them fighting Magneto in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants so you know like we needed to fix that and make Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants again and then X-Men got better.
9: I love how Rob Liefeld's major critique of new comics is that is there's too much writing and people talk to each other too much. It's like like do you not like reading Rob? Like just, I just want double page splashes of Fighting! Uh, I want to. I want this comic book to be over in five minutes. Uh, <laughs> I want to read it real
2: fast.
5: <laughs> which is the anti Lobdell, because if you oh, read yeah. some nineties Lobdell books, I, I think I've told Nico this story before. I Scott Lobdell is. wrote the Fantastic Four number one from the Heroes Return when they came back from being in the post Onslaught Heroes Reborn bubble, and I was taking it and reading it one day, and uh, which was a big mistake. But I, I felt like I needed to reread it, and my wife was like, you know, like, oh, I want to go do something, and you help? me and I'm like yeah as soon as I finish the book like I'm just reading one comic and she came in like 30 40 minutes later and was like what the fuck like I thought you said and I'm like as soon as I'm done with this she's like you're still reading the same thing and I'm like yeah she's like you didn't tell me it was a trade and I'm like I swear to god it's not a fucking trade it's a single issue of comics and I've never read anything this like I can't believe I'm still reading the same fucking issue like and I don't you know, know why I'm doing this to myself oh, that's kind of like I, I want to go out of my
0: way to say something because we're-, we're-, we're throwing a lot of people from an era in the same box there is no. no world in which fabian nicieza is the same thing as a rob Liefeld. They are so not the same thing. Niesieza genuinely has a love of canon. He genuinely cares about characters. He is a strong proponent for others in the industry coming up and having their say and evolution of story. Sure, there's times that he delivers it kind of weak in, in my to my taste, but Fabian Niesieza isn't a tear downer. He is a refine it back to where he wants it-er. He might have a very specific Niesieza strainer that he puts the stories through but i don't think he has ever like outright pissed on someone else's work
5: that's a really important separation for me in these two categories mm-hmm. and that's for his work at marvel and dc as well he never when he took over other characters or did um you know he he pretty much honored what they were up until the point when you know editorial was mandating change as well um i'm thinking specifically of his run on the uh, tim drake robin book
9: the the recent juggernaut mini i mean he has he has knowledge and respect for the new Krakoan era you know he's he's there with it that, that I mean that's another reason why this issue is just kind of off. I, we mentioned it earlier about Deadly Genesis. So like I love Ed Brubaker so much, and the more I read of him, like when I found out he had like this kind of you know the this short burst of X Men comics, I got really excited to read it. And and that's what threw me off is because like so I mean Ed Brubaker did this Deadly Genesis where Vulcan comes from, and then Vulcan ends up being this huge deal where we go into like he does the, doesn't the War he? Of, yeah like War of War of Kings and like the the War of good
5: it's, cosmic stuff like,
9: yeah like a major major cosmic opera of marvel that a lot of people are really into from like annihilation saga to to the first formation of like the guardians of the Galaxy. yeah no that
5: that's the that's the kickoff and really the first big run of you know the the star lord gomorrah Guardians.
9: yeah and and so i was really really confused when this new summers brother has almost the exact same origin as vulcan and i was just i was like wait i've read this before from a different writer, so it I threw me off. But I, and, I, and I don't know.
5: I'm
6: here the for thing it. Is
9: that
5: Adam X was supposed to be there and was built to it, and then another right. writer came in and made it a fourth character. And it's kind of like building Lego pieces in a way that it it made it too difficult for Adam X to ever fit back into that story. And as we started seeing in the decade after, people who grew up with '90s stuff and wanted love these characters and wanted to bring them back. Like, there's been a huge resurgence of. In last years of in recent years of 90s characters because the writers grew up with that. People the who love yep. Nate Gray, not because he's been a great character with all these great story moments, but because they grew up with him and he feels like there. And he was shirtless with that X on his chest, and he was always I want to be. I want to be X-Men Jesus. I have I want to be X-Men Shaman, <laughs> yeah. <was> coming back <laughs> again. But um so, but well, yeah, so like this this fits into that, and people want Adam X. People have been clamoring for Adam X, like when they did the um the X-Men 1 cover and they had Wolverine kind of silhouetted out and you couldn't see who the other person with the Summers family was. I know there were a bunch of people online that were like, Adam X is going to join the family! So, and then so it was Logan. Which was I cool in its story,
0: own way, but not. I think, I think we're using Twitter blinders though. I think we're saying no, a small, loud never. people on Twitter wanting Adam X is the same thing as mass demand for the character.
5: The and- people want Adam X all across <laughs> America. Millions of people are chanting.
0: They're celebrating in the
5: streets. He's here. So the blood is boiling.
0: They're actually bloody.
5: Bernie, people. Bernie
9: Sanders is like, I'm once again asking you to bring back Adam X. I would bet fucking
5: anything that that meme already exists. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs>